Thank you for pressing start on episode 18 of Underplayed, KZUM's indie video game podcast. Today we have two secret games, followed by a review of our featured game, Momodora, Reverie Under the Moonlight. Here on Underplayed, we review indie games of all kinds, the games with small budgets, but big hearts, the lesser-known experiences with imaginative ideas. I'm Bopo, and joining me is my player too, Disco Cola. What's going on? Not much, Bopo. Just hanging out with you. How are you? I'm doing just fine, your curse-ridden highness. Uh, (laughs) That's, of course, a reference to Momodora, Reverie Under the Moonlight. And this is a featured game that is actually a long time coming. If you remember our original plans for season one of Underplayed, we were originally going to play Momodora, and then we switched it out for something else because of an opportune moment to be really efficient with our time. Yes. Um, So the game that it ended up being replaced by was Carrion, uh, which was episode seven of season one. So here we are, episode seven of season two. We're playing Momodora Reverie Under the Moonlight. It has felt like I have owed this game something for so long, <laughs> like especially compared to other featured games. Have it's, you felt that too? It's just like that, um, you know, lawnmower of your neighbors in the tool shed. And you're just like, man, I got to give that. I got to give that back. Yes. You're just thinking about it like exactly. that. I have felt a little bit of guilt. I have felt like I've just shoved it off to the side, but we ended up saving some time in season one and it came at a crucial time in that season where... We were just over the halfway mark, and now here we are. The fourth game uh, in the series, Momodora, Reverie Under the Moonlight, will be featured um, in the back half of this episode. Looking forward to that one with you. This is, I think, the first time we're playing the fourth in a series for a featured game. Probably the first time playing anything other than the first game in a series, if we've played any other series. I'm, there's not too many that we, yeah, that we play that are a part of a series. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah, an interesting thing to think about. So not only do I want to talk about this game, but we will also cover uh, some of the games that came before it. Uh, Momodora's one through three. We're going to break those down a little bit before we get into our overall thoughts on that one. But before we get to Reverie Under the Moonlight, let's move on to our secret games. The secret games that you're playing. In Secret Games, we each review an indie game we've been playing in secret since our last episode recording. We don't discuss our picks at all in advance. We keep them a surprise for this very moment. Any indie game can be chosen as long as we haven't reviewed it before. And as always, we'll start with you, Disco Cola. Now, I know that you usually like to pick a game that has synergy with our featured game. And I know you love Metroidvanias. Our featured game is Metroidvania. So Mm -hmm. I imagine you picked... Metroidvania, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you picked a game that has synergy in another way, or you picked a completely different game that doesn't have synergy. Just throwing you off. Throwing me off. Uh, uh, so let the mystery be no more. Reveal your secret game for episode 18 of Underplate. I would say that no game combo has had as much synergy as this episode. Whoa, that is a bold statement. Bold, yes. Bold. My secret game is Altari's Lost Ruins. Okay, so you just sent me a trailer. I'm looking at that right now. And as I watch, why don't you tell me about Lost Ruins? All right. So from Steam, a young girl wakes up in a dimly lit dungeon without any of her memories. Surrounded by horrible, bloodthirsty monsters, she is rescued by a mysterious magician named Beatrice. With Beatrice's help, the girl goes on a perilous journey to find answers and unlock the secrets of the Lost Ruins. Uh, so Lost Ruins is a 16-bit style survival Metroidvania uh, with a ton of modern visual flourishes. Um, like Metroidvanias, there are platforms to jump on, obstacles to surpass, and a variety of like themed monsters to destroy and loads of weapons to collect. Your motivation is given to you from Beatrice. Um, As I mentioned, your memories are missing, and Beatrice tells you that it is a side effect of being summoned to this world by the Dark Lady. 
It is implied that you might regain your memories if you defeat the Dark Lady, um, but to reach her, you are told that you first must uh, find all of the followers of the Dark Lady, and thus you set out. So like all Metroidvanias, there are a lot of paths locked off to you at the start of the game. Um, As you progress, you gain access to more and more areas. Uh, Each of the areas are, for the most part, pretty visually distinct from each other and are themed after the boss of that area. Now, since I'm on the subject of it, uh, one of the things that I both dislike and like about this game is that it is actually pretty linear. Um, Metroidvanias typically give you uh, some mobility upgrades that allow you to reach multiple locations in different parts of the map. This game, as far as I can tell, doesn't really do that. You definitely don't get mobility upgrades um, and I don't know if there's a way to sequence break, honestly. Um, I'm, I'm sure someone's found a way, but there aren't, yeah, like I said, there aren't mobility upgrades. Your jump height never improves. Um, while this is something that I usually would dislike, um, I'm impressed with how it kind of tricks you into thinking that you have a lot of options. Um, because there are a lot of branching paths within each individual area. Um, But as far as I can tell, your boss order is kind of set. Um, I could be wrong, uh, but I think that's kind of the genius of it. I think it's linear, but uh, I had access to so much anyways that I'm still not sure. Yeah, you could be convinced that it's the other way. Right. Maybe, yeah. Um, And and most most of the time when you're reaching new areas, it's because you gained access to some key, and that key was dropped from completing some side quest or some boss. And so... I'm still not sure, but um, I think it's pretty linear. Uh, Beyond that, the survival element plays a really big role in this game. Uh, You collect several different kinds of weapons, food, magic, and equipment that you need to adjust to different situations to survive. Um, This feels a bit like Momodora in that you have to be very selective about what you can have equipped at any given time. Um, and, And there you have it. Manage your resources, collect your items kill the five followers of the Dark Lady, and make your way to the final boss. That being said, Metrovanias are usually pretty straightforward like that. Uh, So I'm going to go over some things that I uh, like and dislike. Um, Pretty much everything in this game is kind of uh, double-edged for me. Gameplay and combat feels really polished in some ways. Um, I think a lot of care uh, went into how the main character moves, but on the flip side, combat can be frustrating very frequently um hitboxes are really unforgiving it will seem like you're close enough to land a hit on your enemy but the attack like won't connect meanwhile there are times when your character will take damage when it seems like you should be in the safe zone um striking speed too uh is very frustrating each weapon has one of seven or so striking speeds Um, But even the fastest speed seems to leave you so vulnerable to most other enemies' speeds. Um, But then on the other hand, the rolling dodge is very forgiving and is pretty much one of the most important tools in your arsenal. Um, As far as story, story's nothing special. Uh, Metroidvanias don't really excel at stories most of the time anyway. Um, This feels pretty much exactly like an isekai anime, and I may be pronouncing that wrong which, if you don't know, is a subgenre of anime where the main character dies and is reincarnated or wakes up in a totally different world, um, usually with some sort of special powers or something that makes them remarkable in some way. As such, the story doesn't really do anything new or inventive. Um, I think there's only really one interesting twist in the whole game. Otherwise, the whole plotline's kind of cliché. Uh, The game is pretty lighthearted in general, though uh, many of your boss and enemy characters are pretty serious, as one might expect in a monster-filled world, but your main character and a lot of the secondary characters provide a lot of levity in the situation. Uh, Character design, I think this is probably the selling point of the game, whether players will want to admit it or not. Um, And what I mean is the elephant in the room for those in the know. This game is pretty stinking horny. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> we get a small taste of that in Momodora, uh, just just a little bit, and you saw a little bit of that in the trailer. Um, but uh, 
This takes what Momodora has and turns it up to about an eight. Not quite an 11, but it turns it up to about an eight. Are you talking mostly with the larger character designs or is it just kind of all throughout? Pretty much all of them, uh, at least to some degree. Um, The characters are all drawn in an anime style, so you might expect a little bit of that in general anyways. Um, It's just a little bit extra. Uh, And the game leans into that quite a bit. Um, So I don't like that I wouldn't feel comfortable playing this game in any company. Um, That being said, the actual drawn and pixel art is done incredibly well. It's not the best, but it's among the best I've personally seen in like these modern pixel art games. Um, Items, there's not much I actually like about the items in this game. Uh, My favorite thing in Metroidvanias is item collection but most of the items you collect are disposable or limited in some way. Um, now, this is the survival part of the game, and you get, you know, you, you can get, like, duplicates of permanent items that don't have any reason to duplicate. You can buy many items, but they're so expensive, and money isn't really the easiest thing to come by. Uh, and there are just, there's so many items, just so many Um now, while it was very intentional for this particular game, I didn't really feel like I was rewarded for exploring every corner of the map, mm. at least when it comes to items. Uh, music. Music isn't bad, but mostly forgettable. I remember loving a couple of the songs in the moment, but I can't really remember them now. So they're not bad or anything. It's just not really memorable. Uh, a couple other things I like... Um, I like the lingering effects in combat. I was especially fond of inflicting bleed damage on enemies. Um, There are items that instant heal, but there are items that heal at a rate over time. I think that's a fun way to strategize in the heat of battle. Like I mentioned, there's equipment. Most of it will not change how you look, but some of them will. Like there's you, you can get a witch's hat, and then you'll be wearing a witch's hat when you equip that. Uh, you can get a maid outfit or a swimsuit. Um, there's also this really fun, like optional challenge where you can go through the game without collecting any chests. Mm. And it's a, it's a a little fun way to make myself sort of evade what is my, my usual primary drive. The last thing I really disliked, uh, in this game is a point of no return. I wasn't expecting um, that's not totally uncommon in Metroid games either, uh, at least, but I wasn't expecting it when it happened to me. So I missed like this entire optional section of the game. Uh, and the place where it did happen like looked end gamey to me, but I still had like one major objective when I entered that area. Um, so it just it kind of snuck up on me. Um, in the end, this is a game that's frustrating but still captivating. Almost every death had me wanting to come back for more. You know, just that that same one more try feeling. I was lucky to have some time alone to play this because I would be a bit embarrassed to play this in most company, which really <laughs> kind of limits sure. when I can play. Yeah. Um, so because of all of that uh, and the, you know, frustrating combat, I want to give Lost Ruins a 7 out of 10. Okay. So it's giving me flashbacks to another game with a pixel art style that's uh, 2D that ended up being a lot more linear than I expected. Mm-hmm. Uh, Owlboy. Have you ever played Owlboy? I've started Owlboy, but I had to drop it. Yeah, that's a game that I thought would be much more open. And um, yeah, a lot of observations I have with this. Just looking at the trailer, there's tons of visual flair. There are great particle effects, great shadow effects. Um, this is like pixel art. Upgraded. This is upscaled pixel art, yeah. it looks like. Yeah. Um, the trailer touts utilizing the environment. I know you talked about a lot of the items and stuff like that. Did you have interactivity that you enjoyed using or thought was memorable? Um, most of the time, it uh, <laughs> it works against you, uh, to <laughs> okay. be honest, which, which adds to the frustration. Um, but I would say electrifying water is pretty fun. Uh, if you have the resources to actually use some electricity at that time. Um, and and there's an item you get pretty early on that also nullifies electric damage to you in water. Um, so I'd say that's the one that I did the most. But, you know, playing with fire uh, and poison environmental damage uh, usually was just too risky sure. for me. Okay. Um, 
the there's tons of great visual ideas just in this trailer. A teddy bear being used as a melee weapon. There's a snowman who's a samurai. You know, there's a lot of style, a lot of that anime style mm-hmm. in this thing. I noticed that the idle animations are really expressive too, like almost too expressive. I would I would argue, <laughs> like the full swinging of the pelvis back and forth. Yeah, yeah, she's just very whimsically uh, happy to be alive. Yeah. Uh, well, this game feels like it has a lot of style. Uh, that it might be a, sh- a good showcase game, like a good game to show to people, yeah. uh, maybe without letting them play it. Uh, it sounds like it might be lacking a little bit of polish, but glad you still found stuff to enjoy in Lost Ruins. Yes. Uh, so Lost Ruins is available on PC and Mac. Google says that it's available on consoles, but that is a lie. Oh. As of this recording, it can't be played on console. However, console versions have been announced and we're meant to be here already, so who knows? Okay, um, so at some point, consoles too. Probably yeah. all the main ones we're thinking about. Yeah, so while I sound a bit down on Lost Ruins, I do want to replay it when console finally arrives. Very nice. It's time for My Secret Game, and My Secret Game is a wholesome, cozy little game called Teacup. So Teacup is a 2021 adventure game. It was developed by Smarto Club which I think it's their first game, and it was published by White Thorn Games. I'll read the game synopsis from the Steam storefront. Quote, Teacup is a short and wholesome narrative adventure game with a focus on exploration and nonlinear progression. Help a small and shy frog on her journey to find the ingredients she needs for her tea party. End quote. So in this game, it's a 2D adventure slash exploration game. It has a very painterly look. The whole game has this pointillism style to its art. Um, If you don't know pointillism, that's basically where colors and gradients are made up of really fine dots closely arranged together. And you play as the aforementioned frog named Teacup. Teacup has recently run out of tea paraphernalia and has an upcoming tea party. And your goal is to collect ingredients like black tea, green tea, mint, lemon balm, hibiscus, chamomile, and other ingredients uh, so that you can conduct this tea party. So you walk around Teacup's town of Little Pond, and Little Pond is filled with all kinds of zoomorphic townsfolk, kind of like Night in the Woods. Uh, So one of the first characters you bump into is Otto the Owl, who gives you a map, and then you can pull that open to see where you are. Um, Other townsfolk take the form of eagles, foxes, otters, dogs, cats, Um, There's a salamander or two. And also at the time that this game takes place, Little Pond is having this anniversary festival. So in the plaza, in the main part of the town, um, there's a theater stage set up. Uh, There are tons of shops. There are people uh, hanging out around outside. Uh, The town is also filled with ponds and lily pads and forests. So that kind of gives you an idea of the aesthetic going on here. As Teacup, your only inputs are moving around sprinting, and interacting. So it's a very basic control setup. When you talk to another townsperson, the game is voiceless, but you get speech bubbles, and you also get a little vocalization to represent what they should sound like. So you'll talk to somebody, and then they'll go like, (laughs) you know, like that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, As you interact with the townsfolk, they have these little errands and challenges for you to do in exchange for those tea ingredients, and those favors often take the form of mini-games. So one has you fishing picnic items out of the river, uh, which I think you saw in the trailer that I just sent you. Um, There's one where you have to win a swimming race. Um, Someone has a stamp collection that you have to reorganize. There's a produce stand in the beginning of the game that you're asked to tidy up with um, a little kind of Tetris-like game. Um, You eventually fill in for somebody who's missing uh, for a play. You have to kind of improvise a performance for a play. Perfect Um, for a shy frog. Exactly. Yeah. So it's just definitely out of her element in that one. Um, and as you play, you have this tea encyclopedia and it fills out as you collect all these ingredients. And when it fills out, it gives you some information about the real world effects of various ingredients. So for example, when you collect mint, you learn that mint tea is great for colds and congestion. It tells you all these facts about it. So that's kind of where this game becomes a little bit more educational. What I liked about Teacup, the game is very wholesome. It made me feel a lot better while I played it. I was in a mood to play something more relaxing. On the side, 
I've been playing tons of like bigger games, uh, games with lots of combat, games with lots of action and violence. So I wanted something to contrast with that. Mm -hmm. And that's where Teacup came in. It's a very peaceful, kind-hearted game. It's gentle and warm. Um, there's a good variety with the favors and mini games you're asked to do as well. Some have you explore and uh, find another character. Some will have you solve a puzzle. Some are more reaction focused. And the exploration and mini games reminded me a lot of Later Alligator in this thing. This thing feels like Later Alligator, except maybe a little less comedic, mm -hmm. um, a little less uh, nonsensical, even though you are playing as zoomorphic animals. Their behaviors are very much human-like. Um, the game is gorgeous. It feels like you're playing a painting. There are lots of colors across the canvas. The pointillism is really committed to, and it gives the game um, its own style. I also love seeing the townsfolk dressed in their different styles of clothing. So some of the shopkeepers will wear aprons. Some people are wearing suits uh, next to the pond. The salamanders have their swimwear on. Uh, others are just kind of casually dressed. And the outfits really give you a sense of who they are before you talk to them. And I ended up taking tons of screenshots of Teacup just because I loved how every area of this game looked. Um, also, the low frame rate idle animations of the characters give them this sort of relaxed look. So when characters are just sitting there, there are only a few frames to represent that that movement. And it has this dreamlike look. And I think that really fits with the the mood, the attitude of this game. And one thing that was kind of surprising uh, was this very sweet meeting that Teacup has with her grandma at the end of the game. I really appreciated that moment in particular. Mm -hmm. I think this game is a great length that you can uh, complete it in less than two hours. And I can recommend it to pretty much anyone. Uh, what I didn't enjoy as much, when you're going around talking to people in the town, if you don't pay close attention or if you don't handle one task at a time, you can actually lose track of how many current tasks you have going. And this is because of a few reasons. Um, some characters will tell you to go places or do tasks, and they only tell you once. So you can't really go back to some characters and get that reminder of what they want you to do. Oh, okay. So pay attention when you talk to these characters, if you play this game, they won't repeat what they say sometimes. And you don't have a journal. You have that tea encyclopedia, but you don't have a journal with tasks in it. I think this game would make sense um, if it's not going to remind me through the dialogue, what I should do from the characters. Uh, give me a journal that just tells me where I should go or like remind me of just the vague tasks that I'm supposed to do for somebody. And I think that you know, you could have fit that journal into that tea book, maybe. So you don't have to have a journal and a tea book. So I think it just makes sense to have that in there. Um, also, I mentioned you can move, you can sprint, and there's really never a reason to not sprint. The sprint is actually more of a brisk walk. Mm -hmm. And I wish that was the default speed. I think the walk speed is way too slow. In that trailer I sent you, um, I think throughout the whole thing, teacup is walking. You don't see her sprint. Right. So the sprint is actually... Um, a much better speed for her by default, I think. And then some of those interactive moments, I think, are just missing a little detail, um, a little bit more feedback to make them feel complete. Some of them feel a bit stiff. I'm thinking of when you're rearranging the produce stand. Um, it might be better on PC, but I played this on console. Um, rotating the pieces uh, to get them to fit into the board, just kind of cumbersome. A lot of the mini games are just missing that sound effect or maybe just a little additional animation to give that reinforcement of what's going on. It just feels a little stiff. Mm -hmm. uh, but overall, Teacup is a bite-sized game appropriate for any age. It's one of the most beautiful-looking games I've played for this season of Underplayed. And I don't take that statement lightly because we are over halfway in the season. And I just love how this game looks. I recommend it as an experience to help you de-stress or uh, maybe cleanse the palate after playing something longer or more challenging. Uh, I think it misses some of the small details that could make it a bit more polished. Uh, but I think this is an impressive work of art for Smarto Club's first game. So I'm going to rate this a 7.5 out of 10. Hell yeah. Yeah. Uh, this game is playable on PC, Nintendo Switch, PS4, which is how I played it. Allegedly, according to the internet, it's on PS5, but it doesn't have a PS5 version as far as I could tell. Um, the internet also says it's on Xbox One and Xbox Series X and S, 
but because of the alleged PS5 version that isn't there on the PlayStation <laughs> storefront, I wonder if there actually is an X and S version. So it's on Xbox somewhere, I think. We're we're becoming skeptical of of all things that Google say after uh, Lost Ruins lied to us. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I just had to put that note in there um, in case somebody was looking for it in a specific place. Um. Yeah. So one of the things that I noticed right away when I was watching this trailer was the walking speed and um, because of that speed and the the low frame rate animation it had me thinking that maybe it was that she was auto walking to her next location like you had like a point and click option uh, and you clicked where you wanted to go. Go here and she does the walking for you. No, you're, you're inputting that every second. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Um, it does look like a point and click game though. Yeah. It does. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I I don't really have much that I seem to need clarification on about how many different mini games would you say are in this? Oh boy. Um well the game's not very long. It only took me about an hour and 16 minutes to platinum. Um nothing is missable. I'd say there's a good uh half dozen to 10 maybe okay. uh different mini games. And uh, they're all they're all pretty different. Um, yeah, like I said, some are reaction based. Some require you to just walk somewhere else, do a quick favor for somebody, um, arrange a puzzle. And uh, I also just you know again, I appreciated that this game was a little educational. Um, I didn't read every single note about every tea ingredient, but I was surprised by how much detail was in there in the journal. Um, like I, there are tons of facts about jasmine that mm-hmm. I never would have known, uh, chamomile that I never would have known. Um, one of the big mini games is actually at the end, you do uh, you make tea for like 10 different people. So that's after you've collected all the ingredients. So right. that's kind of what the game builds up to. Okay. Well. So those are our secret games, Lost Ruins and Teacup. Let's move on to our review of Momodora, Reverie Under the Moonlight. It is our featured game. So Momodora, Reverie Under the Moonlight, which I will never tire of saying, was released in 2016. It is a 2D side-scrolling Metroidvania. It was developed by Bomb Service, which is a moniker taken on a little bit later in the Momodora series by uh, the creator Ardine, a developer who has released some of the Momodora games on itch.io for free. Uh, It was published by Playism. I will read the game synopsis from the Steam storefront. Quote, Momodora Reverie Under the Moonlight is the fourth installment in the beloved Momodora series of 2D platformers. Unleash ravaging combos against a variety of formidable monsters and deftly dodge your way through a cursed land to seek audience with the queen and dispel the evil that threatens all life. End quote. I think that storefront description summarizes the game really well uh, because this game is Relatively simple in story and design, mm-hmm. uh, especially for a Metroidvania. But we will give a little bit more context to what's going on here. So this game has 2D pixel art. You play as a character called Keho, who is a priestess from a village to the west where a curse has spread through where she lives. And Keho embodies this trope that we see in a lot of these kinds of games, the heroic mime, where the protagonist in this game is admirable, um, is heroic, often talks to other characters, but we don't actually see or hear what she says. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are talking to her, and what she says back is kind of assumed, right? Right. Uh, Keho travels east to Karst City, which is the central area where the queen resides. You eventually meet a character called Kath. A knightess who tells Keho of the true source of the curse and also tells you that you need to search for four crest fragments to allow yourself access to later parts of the game. There are various areas in this game. You start in the Sacred Ordelia Grove. There's Car City that we mentioned. There's a forlorn monastery, um, underground cinder chambers. There's a Whiteleaf Memorial Park, a subterranean grave, uh, and a castle. To, to name most of them, you wield a magic maple leaf that you swing as a sword type weapon. Mm-hmm. 
And you also have a bow that you can shoot very quickly. And you can also charge up the bow for a powerful attack. Uh, you can also gain abilities, different uh, bow charge attacks, the ability to warp between save points, and you can dash in midair eventually. You can also gain money to buy passive and active spells and abilities, um, and you can equip several of those at a time. You can also find some of those hidden around the world, and you encounter small enemies and eventually larger bosses, uh, usually like a boss per kind of main area mm -hmm. of the game. Now, that's all I would say uh, to set up the game to somebody. A lot of pretty typical expected things of Metroidvania games. But here is also where I want to catch us up on the Momodora series, because this is a series I was totally unfamiliar with uh, before I played Reverie. Yeah, Reverie is the only one I'm familiar with at all. And I don't think you're the only one, because I think uh, Reverie is far and away like the most recognized, the most popular, the most accessible. Yeah. Uh, but let's catch us up here. So this is the fourth game, but it acts as a prequel to the previous three games. Momodora 3 is actually the only other game in the series available on Steam. So you can't find Momodoras 1 and 2 on Steam. I didn't check any other storefronts, but I doubt that they're elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, but one and two were offered for free on itch.io. The first one was released in 2010. The first game included guns oh. and was heavily inspired by Mega Man and Metal Slug, as you could imagine. Huh. Um, but also heavy influences for this game were uh, Zelda, but probably most prominent of all, Cave Story, which okay. you and I have talked about a little bit uh, yeah. outside of the show. The second game released in 2011, and that's where you start to see the visual style evolve in this series. It becomes more Metroidvania-like with two. They ditched the guns. A map was introduced, and also there were multiple endings in two. I think uh, just dependent on one decision you make at the end, but I could be wrong on that. And then three released three years later in 2014, and this was the first game to cost money. And... When it released, it only cost $2. Nice. And to this day, I checked today, and here in 2022, it still only costs $2. <laughs> um, and in that game, this is where we kind of get the Momodora nomenclature as well, I think. But in three, you can play as either Isadora, who's a character from Momodora 1, or Momo, who's a character from game two. Uh, a lot of this is... Research I did outside of playing these games, so I'm, there might be a little bit of inaccuracy, but those characters, I think, are what influence the nomenclature of this series. What's interesting about 3 is that it ditched the map and the Metroidvania elements, so it kind of took a step back to oh, its roots uh, in favor of more linearity, but this game allowed you to warp between points. Um, and again, the visuals were more refined in 3. They also introduced a trinket system for these passive upgrades, which is something we see in Reverie a lot. Um, you carry around two or three passive upgrades at all times if you want. And three also introduce a lot more boss battles than the series had seen before. So it's interesting how it traded some of the progress it made in the Metroidvania area uh, you know, for some more features and um, uh, more dynamic gameplay that, that one and two didn't have before. And then we get to Momodora 4. Reverie isn't actually numbered for, but you can call it for if you want. And it was backed by uh, crowdfunding. It returns to the Metroidvania formula. There are big improvements to enemy variety, and it has uh, quite arguably the best visuals yet in the series. And the story throughout all these games is quite minimal, but they do sort of tie into each other. And all the games focus on a heroine using a magic maple leaf. I don't know if you knew that, but that maple leaf idea is actually in all the games. So that's the connecting thread here. Yes, one of the most prominent ones. Uh, and you fight monsters in all of them. You fight curses in a lot of them. The series is very women-focused and uh, female character-centric as well. Uh, and then there is a fifth game upcoming called Momodora Moonlit Farewell, and the release date is currently to be announced. But um, I think we learned about it within the past year um, as of this recording. So, uh, I th I yeah, think, that's where we are. I think Minoria is also worth mentioning. Um, not connected in story, as I understand, uh, but Minoria is a very similar kind of game from 
um, the same developer, I believe. Oh, interesting. I didn't know about Minoria. I just looked it up. One of the first images, uh, there's a character that looks just like Lubella. I did not research this at all, but thank you for noting that. Wow. Yeah, just something okay. to keep in mind. I've heard uh, mixed things about Minoria, so um, okay. if you if you like Momodora at the end of this, after you've played it, maybe check out Minoria as well. Yeah, it looks like Minoria might actually be 16 by 9, whereas all the other games we've mentioned are 4, four by, by 3. three. Yeah. Um, but Minoria was released in 2019, it looks like. So Disco Cola, you're a huge fan of Metroidvanias, and this was a game that you had played prior to your playthrough in preparation for this episode. Yes. Right? You... Well, kind of. Okay, so, so how much had you played it before? Uh, last year, I played it when we were going to do it for the episode. <laughs> before we picked Carrion. Yes. yes. Uh, I had finished it then, but before that, I'd only turned it on for maybe like 40 minutes to give it a test run. Um Momodora Reverie Under the Moonlight was one of my first, if not the first, like, I'm going to go buy a physical version of an indie game. Wow. It might have been my first limited run game game. Wow. Oh, my gosh. That's important to note. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've always been really impressed with the, the art style, but for the longest time, it just sat on my shelf, and I only played about 40 minutes of it. So you've played it a total of two point three times yeah so or so yeah right i'd okay. say so that's gotcha. fair so uh tell me what are your overall feelings on reverie under the moonlight um a lot of my thoughts for reverie kind of mirrored lost ruins in a lot of ways uh on on every account i just think that momodora is more polished overall um like you alluded to the story isn't much of anything it's pretty forgettable i would say um, I'd, I'd actually say in this case, it's a little bit less interesting than the story of Lost Ruins, to be honest. Um, yeah, it's basically, there's a curse. Someone whose village is affected by the curse goes to figure out what's going on. That's who you play as. And then you go fight demons that are, you right. know, there's, that's really it. Yeah. Uh, and and you, you find the source of the curse. Yeah. Whereas like the characters in Lost Ruins, um, seem related to the story or like build the story a little bit more. Uh, you meet characters along the way here in Momodora and most of them don't add much of anything. Yeah. I don't feel like. Right. Um, so a little bit, little bit bland in that category, but that's not why I play Metroidvanias anyways. Um, music is only just fine. Nothing really stands out for me though. I would say that uh, one of the first things I actually noticed when I turned it on for that point three playthrough uh, was sound design like like the sound effects? I kind of kind of didn't like them at all uh, when I first turned <laughs> it on. Um, this time around, I'm I'm a little bit uh, more. I, I like them a little bit more. Um, just seeing how closely this game follows uh, like 16-bit limitations, and noticing that some of those sound effects also follow some of those 16-bit limitations. However, the death scream. I still think sounds pretty bad. And that was oh, one of the first right. things yeah. that stood out for me. Yeah. So still don't like that as much. Um, but uh, It's jarring. It is jarring. It yeah. doesn't feel like it fits in. Yeah. Um, gameplay overall is much more polished and much more enjoyable uh, than Lost Ruins, even compared to some of the other Metroidvanias that I was previously like very positive on. Um, I actually, I turned on... The Mummy Demastered again last night to to do some trophy cleanup. Nice. Uh, and I actually, you remember how positive I was on that and oh, yeah. how much I enjoyed that game. Yeah. Uh, I actually, uh, this time around, liked the gameplay in Momodora even more than I did in the Mummy Demastered. So. Wow. And um, and Mummy Demastered was in your top five from season one, if I recall. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, had a lot more fun this time around than I did last year because I remember. Being very frustrated last year when I mm. when I did it for for um, episode seven and difficulty is a big discussion topic around this game. People talk about how this, you know, they attribute. I've seen like on the Steam tags that are attributed to this game. I've seen like Souls like you know, which I think is a bit of a stretch. That's that's a little bit of a stretch. Yeah, it is. But um, but tell me about difficulty real quick. Did you play this time on an easier difficulty than before or the same? I played in hard mode. Okay. Um, this time, whereas last time I played in normal mode. Gotcha. Uh, okay, so you, you had more of a challenge this time, but ended up 
having uh, having more fun. More fun. Yeah. Okay. Um, items, you know, big important topic in Metroidvanias. Um, similar to in Lost Ruins, some of them are limited. However, different because they they can't be replenished by enemy drops. Uh, though you never lose your items when you run out. Uh, they simply get refilled at save stations. So it's still not my favorite way to do items in general, um, but I definitely prefer this to uh, what I played in Lost Ruins. And the main like secret collectible seems to be 20 ivory bugs, and I don't really feel like finding these pays off, yeah. really. Uh, they actually kind of work like the grubs in Hollow Knight, where you can bring them to somebody who's collecting them, and they'll give you this game's version of charms mm-hmm. and this, this game's version of that currency, right? Right. Um, that's like the biggest parallel I saw between uh, Hollow Knight and this. True. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, characters and character design. Um, most everybody kind of feels forgettable. Like I said, they don't really add much uh, to the story, which is fine, again, for a Metroidvania. Um, perhaps even preferred sometimes. Um, but there were some cool boss designs, the most memorable, of course, being Lubella. She kind of is even more iconic than Keho in a lot of ways, um, sort of for some of the same reasons that Lost Ruins sticks out, <laughs> uh, you know, giant, giant lady. Um, there's this translucent bird boss that's pretty cool. I don't remember its name, and I don't know what its significance is in the greater <laughs> scheme of things, uh, but he looks cool. Um in general, though, from being one of the earliest notable indie Metroidvanias, at least that I'm aware of, um, art design was my primary attraction to the game. So not just very well done pixel art style, but the cover art and um, auxiliary art is very beautifully done. It's just a, a beautiful art style with washed out colors, instantly recognizable. Um, something that kind of frustrated me at times, though, uh, was level design. Um, I found there to be a few too many points uh, where there's like a ledge that's too high to reach. And then even when you're a fully powered Keho, uh, you still have to go up and around or mm. take a, a long walk just to get to that ledge that's just barely out of reach. Yeah, And I felt that happen like a few too many times. So I feel like some of my reward for collecting all these items and upgrades and getting to the end of the game should be that I don't have to go through those struggles at the end of the game right. that I did at the reward, reward me with those shortcuts um, by letting me use my abilities in new ways to yeah. traverse yeah. levels. Um, Keho does have a double jump yes. by default yes. from the start. In a lot of Metroidvania games, you gain a double jump as an ability like you know, maybe a third of the way through the game. Mm-hmm. Um, she starts with one, but the double jump is not that powerful. Right. Um, that's kind of the trade-off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Momodora Reverie Under the Moonlight is a little bit of a legend that I was excited to get physically from Limited Run Games in my hands. Uh, A game I was frustrated with and lukewarm uh, with on the first playthrough, Uh, but this time around, I found a bit more joy in the gameplay. Um, I had a lot of fun with challenges I skipped for the first time around. Uh, For example, you can get special items when you defeat bosses without taking damage. I did that this time around for every boss added a lot of fun that I didn't experience the first time. Um, so I want to give Momodora Reverie Under the Moonlight an 8 out of 10. Sweet. I'm so glad you had more fun with it this time. Yeah. Well, I think Momodora Reverie Under the Moonlight is a Metroidvania that's relatively simple and smaller in scale, but nonetheless very enjoyable. I think this game feels quite good to play. I like swinging the leaf. It feels powerful. Um, Doing a combo, like a triple hit, that um, hit, 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 always felt nice to me. I liked rolling through enemies, and sometimes you need to do that to get to their weak point where they can only be hit. Uh, Some of them hold shields, you know, so you have to roll through them. That always felt really cool. Uh, Shooting the bow, you know, just being able to shoot as many arrows as you want endlessly without a quiver. Mm-hmm. Or like a, a charge meter uh, or something like that. Just being able to shoot that thing uh, made me feel like I could cheese a lot of enemies. <laughs> yeah. And it felt like I was cheating at the game. And I love when I can do that. And it's allowed. Mm-hmm. And I think I agree with you. I think this has some really iconic character designs. I also point out Lubella, which is a giant witch with antlers growing out of her head. She has a big bosom and a really creepy mouth. Lots of jagged edges on those lips. Um and because the game is smaller, 
I found that it was pretty easy to know where to go. I could just pull up the map if there was ever um, a point where I didn't have a room that connected to my last point that I had explored in a certain area. I knew that that was probably a good place to go explore. So I didn't really get lost with this one. I didn't have that frustration of not knowing where to go. Um, I love the aesthetic. I, I think it's. I think the visual style is detailed. It's brooding a lot of the time. I love the reflections on the water in oh, places like yeah. the Sacred Ordelia Grove. Forgot the, about that. The reflections, seeing the exact reflection of you, um, 180 degrees rotated underneath you, looks so cool in this game. I love the look of Karst City, especially when you're outdoors with that blood moon. Mm-hmm. And I think this is truly a step up visually from what I've seen of the previous games, Momodora's one through three. I think this game feels a lot like what a 2D Bloodborne might feel and look like in both setting and difficulty and visual style. There's this really interesting intersection between religion and cursed monsters. And there's something very macabre about that that I find fascinating. And also, as I was playing this game, when I would encounter a boss, it would remind me of bosses from Bloodborne, just from uh, their names. They're named things like, you know, Pardoner Fennel and Derelict Frida, which I think is that bird that you were talking oh, about. That's okay. Derelict Frida. Um, the Archpriestess Choir, uh, Duchess Lupiar and Royal Huntress Magnolia. Those are <laughs> Bloodborne bosses, and they're in this 2D Metroidvania, which is crazy. If you can't tell, much, uh, I love Bloodborne. So uh, not to talk about a non-indie game too much on this show. But I also love the system of replenishing the items. I know there are other ways you the game could handle this by either making me buy those items from a store to replenish them or to pick them up as drops from enemies. Mm -hmm. But I actually like doing them at save points because I think there are the right number of save points spread throughout the game. I also love that you can play as a cat. I don't know if that's too much of a spoiler, but- I didn't even mention that. Yeah, you can play as a cat in this game. And um, second- featured game in a row where you play as a cat yeah that's true <laughs> and last episode i talked about my secret game cat lateral damage remeowstered you play as a cat in that game that's so true. i've just been on a cat game marathon here i'll, I'll have to play cato robato or whatever for next episode. <laughs> yeah Gat, gato robato some things i disliked uh several of my dislikes are about boss fights yeah but not necessarily about the boss fights themselves um, I simply want more of the bosses to be big and memorable like Lubella, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. I felt like there were a few that were definitely memorable and a lot that were forgettable. It would also be nice to get a little more context behind who they are. I know this game is aiming for a really simple story, but I wish I just knew a little tidbit about them or if something like that was hidden somewhere in the world that I could find. Right. There might be, but I, I didn't find that there. And I didn't find that boss fights were consistently placed throughout the game in like a good pace. I don't know if you agree with this, but I do agree with that. I feel like you get a a good consistent pace of bosses and then there's a drought and then you get kind of a, not quite a boss rush, but you get, you know, an unexpected pace of bosses again, Mm -hmm. close to the end. Uh, I think the map needs a lot of improvement. When you open the map, all you see are these red rooms and close to the end of the game, it just becomes a mess to me. I, I don't I can't tell where anything is. I can't remember what blocky red arrangement of rooms is which. So I wish all of the like eight or nine sub areas of the game, I wish they were like color coded or mm-hmm. something or just named on the map. And I think the map could also use a few call outs like where certain shops are or things like that. All it really tells you is where all the rooms are and they're all colored the same way and where all the save points are. And that's it. Mm -hmm. So I wish there was more. I also think the whole experience could just use a little more overall story, especially more moments with Keho and Kath. I think if they gave those two characters just a few more moments, it would have gone a long way. I'm not saying this thing has to have a complicated, you know, grand story, but I think it could have used a little more. Yeah, there's there there is certainly a moment that didn't really have an, an an impact that it could have. I know exactly what you're talking about, and when it hit, I thought, oh, I know I'm supposed to feel something here, but I'm not. There's also a vendor who sells different items, 
and the vendor looks the same in every location you run into it, but every place you meet it, it smells. I don't know what gender it is. <laughs> so I have sorry. Yeah, we're trying not to misgender. Yeah, um, but uh, every every time you meet this vendor, they're selling different items, and I wish I just always had access to all of their items. You know, I. I Instead, I had to remember, okay, they're selling these three items at the beginning of the game in mm-hmm. Sacred Ordelia Grove or whatever, or at the beginning of Karst City. But here in, uh, I don't know, the- Cinders, c- whatever. Cinder Chambers, they're selling these two items that are different from those three items. So I uh, wish I could just had access to all of their stuff everywhere. That's something Lost Ruins did too. Okay, really? Yeah. I'm so, oh, that sucks. Yeah. Um, and then my last criticism and- it's not going it's not a game breaking thing, but it's very important to me as someone who's passionate about achievements slash trophies. This game has one of the worst trophy lists I've ever seen. <laughs> like and I'm not lying. Wor- worst in that it's uh unreasonable or worst in that it's just kind of boring and they don't really feed into each other. Just a tiny bit of category A, but I would add that it is not rewarding um for mm-hmm. what it's asking you to do. Yeah. To get 100% of the achievements slash trophies, you have to beat the game on hard to unlock insane mode, which one of the playthroughs you have to do is on insane. You have to do a pacifist run where you don't kill any common enemies. You have to do a no death run, and you can kind of cheat this by choosing quit to main menu and reloading your save when you die instead of choosing retry. Uh, and I wish I had known that when I had started my playthrough. Otherwise, I would have been able to get the no death run. Otherwise, you know, you have to restart a playthrough to do that. Uh, you have to do 100% exploration and collection. And so if you combine all of these tasks, you can maybe whittle it down to two or three playthroughs, but it would be very uncomfortable mm-hmm. uh, to do that. And for all that work, there are only 10 achievements slash trophies. And on PlayStation, there's no platinum trophy. And I played this on PlayStation. I might have been more motivated to go for that insane run, for that no death run, if there was a platinum. But man, for some people like me, um, a badge of honor for going through a really tough experience is that platinum trophy. That's the top. Mm -hmm. And I wish this game had that. There are so many games that offer way less of a challenge, way less tasks uh, to achieve a platinum trophy. And uh, this game doesn't have one. So um, I got all the trophies except the insane playthrough and the no deaths playthrough. And that's really all I want to do. I have no motivation to get 100% on this game. And usually I want to try to get 100% when I can. So that's kind of a testament to how how much I don't want to do the achievements and stuff in this game. But overall, the game is really easy to pick up for people who might be daunted by longer and more complex Metroidvanias. And I find myself in that camp sometimes mm-hmm. where I recognize that Hollow Knight will be an amazing experience. But for years, I avoided it because I was daunted by the length. I was daunted by the difficulty. This is a great alternative. Its story is very simple, which I think makes for an experience that gives us a good excuse to be in a world with great art and haunting settings and interesting enemy designs. And for me, this earns an 8 out of 10. Heck yeah. Same score as you, Disco Heckers. Cola. Yes. All right. So we're aligned on the score on this. Um, we both have criticisms, but a lot of praises. And I ended up enjoying this a lot more than I expected to, actually. I thought this would maybe be a 6 or a 7 for me, but I ended up liking it a lot more. That's great. I was uh, I I didn't know what you would think of it after some of the other games that we've played. I I sort of got a better idea of how you felt about certain certain styles, certain visual styles, and whatnot. But um, cool. I'm glad you liked it. I'm I'm glad that I liked it more because I was really disappointed when I played it during season one. I was like, oh man, I wish I liked this more. Yeah, because I was really excited about it. Yeah, sometimes games affect us in different ways depending on when we play them and sometimes our feelings improve which I'm glad that happened for you. I th- I think one of the things that you mentioned is actually really important and that's feedback. Um you you alluded to it with the the three leaf slash yeah uh and how that feels and shooting the arrow and how that feels. There's a good feedback when you perform those actions. Um and the challenge that I did this time trying to beat bosses without taking damage um, allowed me to 
maybe play it a little bit differently because I think when I played it the first time, I was tanking a little bit. I had a hard mm. time like figuring out how bosses were telegraphing what they were about to do. Yeah. Um. And there's there's still two bosses that I think don't telegraph very well just in general. But um, doing that challenge this time and that paired with like the the player feedback that you get for your actions, I think really changed how I felt about the game. Mm. I think probably if I had to really sit down and analyze why my feelings were so different, I'd say that was probably it. And I didn't get a lot of the moments that I had with Hollow Knight where I really got to study some of those bosses uh, in this game. And that's because when I played this, when I first started, I actually looked at the trophy list. I thought, okay, I have to do an insane playthrough. How do I unlock that? Oh, I can only play on hard. Let me try just in case hard is manageable. Some games, hard mode isn't that bad. Right. I started on hard and I made it about 30% of the way through, about a third of the way through on hard. And I was spending so much time on the game that I thought I might not finish this game in time for our recording. And right. I don't want to postpone our recording date just because I chose a unnecessarily difficult uh, setting. So I bumped the difficulty down, restarted the game because you can't change the difficulty mid game. Mm -hmm. So I restarted the game and on that easier playthrough, I kind of just destroyed bosses because yeah. I got so... Uh, hard mode hardened me yeah. <laughs> to the difficulty of the game in a way that made it easy for me to just plow through the game on an easier difficulty. So that's how I ended up playing. I didn't get to do a lot of that studying that I liked with Hollow Knight, but you know what? It didn't matter to me. I didn't care too much about it because um, still had a fair amount of difficulty in the puzzle part of Metroidvanias, figuring out where to go and um, still doing combat uh, with enemies along the way. So uh, still had an enjoyable time. It wasn't a completely mindless playthrough. Uh, did you have a favorite area of this game? Uh, we mentioned Sacred Ordelia Grove. We've mentioned the Cinder Chambers. There's the Royal Pinacothica, if that's how we say that. There's Karst City, which would probably, probably be one of mine. Right. Uh, did you have a favorite area? Well, I think... Cinder Chambers is the most memorable uh, because I both, I think it looks cool, but I also hate being there. And I remember really hating being there the first time I played the game. Yes. Uh, there's just a lot of wide gaps um, and places to fall that you can't get back up yes. onto if lots you of, do. Lots of traps, lots of spiked balls falling yeah, from the ceiling. Yeah. yeah, but it also has my favorite uh, like common enemy types in the game. Um, so like the little spawn of the derelict or whatever, the little tiny derelicts. Yes. Um, I like encountering those um, and the floating picture frames or whatever they are. Those appear in the cinder chambers. So I'd, I'd say that's the first place that comes to mind. But uh, when you talked about the, the blood moon, I remember the blood moon being very oh, yeah. beautiful. Um, and you kind of see it from a distance. And then there's a moment where you're walking higher up and it's very close. Oh, yeah. I love that. Super cool. Yeah. Um otherwise a uh, couple of rooms that are in the church looking place. The monastery? Yeah, they look pretty cool. Um I don't really care about that area in general, but just a couple especially like the boss rooms in there are pretty cool. Cool. Um as someone who has probably played more Metroidvanias than I have, I also wanted to see what you think sets this game apart from other Metroidvanias? Uh, I, I would say probably, for one, the combat uh, is a little bit different. Most, most of the Metroidvanias I play lean into the Metroid part, so you have projectiles and guns and lasers and stuff. Uh, Keho uses a leaf. My dude. Yeah. Uh, How many games do you, in general, <laughs> do you get to use a leaf as a weapon? Right, yeah. exactly. So I would say that's one of the things, but uh, mostly I think it's just the art direction. I think the art mm. direction is very beautiful um, and and plays a big role in why this one stands out. Yeah, I I think for me it'd be the leaf. I thought of that. And also just the brevity of the game. Um, I've played a Shantae game, Risky's Revenge, that was like this length. And I remember that feeling so novel because all the Metroidvanias I had played were 15, 20 hours long. Mm -hmm. 
And here's a game that you can finish in maybe four hours, mm-hmm. five hours, six hours. Um, so nice and bite-sized. And sometimes we're in the mood for that. I know I am. Yeah, anyway, so. most most times. <laughs> so can we wrap up there? I Yeah, I don't have much to add. Uh, okay. I feel stupid that I forgot to mention we play as a cat. But uh, <laughs> playing as a cat rules, actually. Actually, say it. yeah. Um, if you're if you're gonna go for hard mode, uh, familiarize yourself with the bow for sure. It's gonna help a lot. Yes, um, I leaned on that a lot, even in easy in the easy playthrough. So, that is our review of Momodora: Reverie Under the Moonlight. You can play it on PC, Mac, Linux, Nintendo Switch, PS4, PS Vita, and Xbox One. Disco Cola rated it an eight. I rated it an eight. That's the end of this episode of Underplayed. You can find more of our episodes at kzum.org slash underplayed and on common podcast services like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Our music was composed by Jack Rodenberg and our art comes from Onimochi. Underplayed is on Twitter at underplayedpod. You can find me on Twitter at bopo, that's B-O underscore P-O, and check out that same handle on the GG app where you can see my game lists and what I'm currently playing. And I am at DiscoCola on Twitter, and at least for the next week, back on Twitch until my family comes home, I'll be playing our next featured game tonight. Next time, we will have two more secret games, and our featured review will cover 12 Minutes, a puzzle mystery adventure developed by Luis Antonio. Until then, everyone, keep on playing. (laughs) 